Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly programme about news in the worlds of business, finance and economics. I'm Andrew Palmer, the Business Affairs Editor. It's been a shaky start to the year, and last week we discussed the global jitters in the financial markets. This week, markets have been calmer, but concerns remain, specifically that policymakers are out of ammunition. Here with me now to discuss these topics is Ryan Avent, our economics columnist, and Henry Trix, our energy editor. Henry, let's start with you because we've had some news this morning about the oil market and an agreement between Saudi Arabia, Russia and others to freeze production. Can you just walk us through that and tell us whether it matters? Yeah. Um, Any hint that Saudi Arabia and Russia, which are basically the two biggest exporters, would cut production would be seen as positive for the oil markets, given the huge oversupply that there is. Um, And this agreement is somewhat unexpected. I think a week ago, no one really would have thought that this would have happened. Having said that, it looks quite flimsy. Uh, Instead of actually talking about cutting production, what they're doing is they're talking about freezing it in January, when production was at a record high. Production is still outstripping demand. So, you know, There doesn't seem to be anything in here that's going to reduce the overhang of stocks, which everyone's so worried about. The other thing is that Iran and Iraq are not part of this agreement. Uh, And the Russians have said quite explicitly that they will only stick to the agreement if other OPEC members take part. Iran in January wasn't even really exporting to the West because of sanctions. And it's desperate to to increase its exports and get them back to their pre-sanctions level. So without Iran on board and with Iran very unlikely to agree to something like this with Saudi Arabia, a country that has great geopolitical differences, is pretty unlikely. And that explains the, the, the price reaction, right? A very, very sharp surge initially, and now it's much more muted. Yeah, I mean, there will continue to be a lot of concern, I guess, in the markets um, about how easy it would be to implement this. And although today, I believe the Venezuelan oil minister, Venezuela's part of the agreement, has gone off to Tehran to try and talk to the Iranians about this, until there's some news like that, I would imagine that the oil market will continue to sort of remain very choppy over this event. Okay, so this is sort of exhibit A, I guess, Ryan, in the thesis that policymakers are trying to do things, but they're not having quite the positive or sustained reaction that one would hope. So let's let's turn to exhibit B, which would be Draghi. Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, um, is trying to reassure people or hint heavily that he's going to be acting um, more aggressively next time he gets up and uh, addresses monetary policy in, in the euro area. He's been talking, I think, this week about exactly that. What's he been saying? Well, Mario Draghi's been trying to talk up markets since December when uh, the ECB really uh, disappointed everyone 
at that meeting, they announced a small cut in rates, which are already in negative territory. But I think a lot of people had thought there would be more QE on the way and an expansion in the ECB's program. And when they didn't get it, everyone kind of freaked out. And um, markets started falling. Uh, the euro started rising, which is bad news for European exporters. And then we started having all these these concerns about European banks. Repeatedly since then, uh, Draghi's been on talking toward a jawbone, everyone back into to some sense of optimism. And this is the latest episode of that. And I think the expectation is that in March, the ECB will, will take some additional steps, probably will increase the size of its quantitative easing program to try to shore up the European economy, which is looking a little bit wobbly. Recent growth figures have been below where we would have wanted them to, to have been German Consumer confidence is looking a little shaky, which is disconcerting given how important uh, Germany has been in the recovery there. And given that and then given continued weakness also in commodity prices, I think there's no question that the ECB has to act. So presumably for the ECB, this means pushing on in the same direction as, as they have in the past. That means either moving further into the red with interest rates or upping the amount of asset purchases. It doesn't mean some big bang, which takes us in an entirely new direction. It doesn't mean a big bang, no. I mean, I think there's not the consensus for that sort of uh, dramatic change in policy. And I don't think we'd see a consensus for that at the ECB unless um, the European economy were really on the ropes and we were back where we were in sort of 2012 when things looked like they were falling apart. So um, potentially there are further reductions into negative territory, although recent events seem to have cast into doubt the effectiveness of, of negative rates as a stimulative policy that seems to really have kind of shaken up bank stocks. And uh, I think people are wondering whether the sort of positives you get from a reduction in interest rates further into negative territory outweighs the benefits. So I think the big play we'll be looking for is as an expansion of the ECB's quantitative easing tool. And we'll see how much they're willing to buy. We might just um, switch to China, Ryan, and, and ask about that too, because that's a country also where it looks like policymakers are going to carry on in the same direction. And it's not necessarily a healthy one to judge by the amount of credit that's been generated in January. That's right. We just got figures on new loans extended in January, and they were just eye-popping. They were above $300 billion, and that marks a big acceleration from where we were at the end of 2015. It's not surprising in a way in that everyone kind of knew that the Chinese government was going to try to open the credit taps more to perk up an economy that was, has slowed below 7% growth, which is kind of what everyone assumes that the government would like to see. But it's, I think, the, the broad sense and the correct sense that, that China can't borrow its way out of this mess and that the more private debt accumulates in the economy, the harsher the reality check will be uh, when it eventually comes and when there's a deleveraging cycle that, that takes off, which I think is, is unavoidable. What does this mean for, for the commodities world, Henry, and for miners in particular? I mean, trying to, st trying to stimulate means we don't hit that moment of sharp slowdown quite as quickly, but the miners are already in great trouble. Presumably, this doesn't change their outlook in any substantive way. No, it doesn't change their outlook, although there has been a, uh, a slight uptick in bullishness about the mining sector in the last, uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, share prices of some of the mining companies have surged, um, partly because there is a sense that although demand from China doesn't look as though it's going to be strong enough to rescue the miners. There are the first inklings of supply cuts by the commodities producers that could go some way towards reducing the massive amount of, of stock that's out there. But this is possibly clutching at straws. You know, some of the mines that have been closed down are very high-cost mines. Um, Anglo-American this morning announced that it was going to sell off 
I mean, basically all of its iron ore business. But uh, it's hard to see at this point whether there are buyers who would be able to come in and take it over. So there's still not a strong conviction within the commodities markets that the corner has been turned. The only area where I think you are seeing a little bit more substantial excitement is in the gold markets. It's an interesting bellwether because, in a sense, one could look at the gold as somewhat of a reflection of the lack of confidence that there is in central banks, in China's recovery. The general fear of a global recession is really what's um, what's pushing up the gold price over this year. Yeah, it's been one of the, the best-performing commodities and remains fairly strong. And what the price level there that matters is 1,200. Yeah, and it's remained above 1,200 since last week. Clearly, it depends whether sentiment in the rest of the market is positive. If stock markets go up, the gold market tends to go down. But generally speaking, there's a sense that this is quite a good hedge against central bank inactivity. OK, and just, Ryan, to end, what do you think gets us out of this sort of slightly phony war feel to this period? We're in a time now where, you know, it looks like stocks are going to jump around a bit. Markets are clearly nervous. We don't quite know which way they're going to break. And presumably policy will determine that. I think policy will. I mean, I think that markets had their faith in policymakers rattled a little bit. And until there is kind of an overwhelming demonstration of force from probably multiple countries, things will kind of stumble along as they have over the last few weeks. And and then whenever there's bad news, probably leg down again. And so it's possible that we'll have kind of a a nice few weeks if if the ECB does come out and surprise with a larger than expected quantitative easing program. But we're sort of in this this world where where kind of good news can be bad news because the better things look in the rest of the world, the more likely it is that the Fed, who, who plausibly could be blamed for starting all of this stuff with its its hike in December, uh, goes ahead with the, its plan to to hike once or, or twice or, or several more times this year, and I think that would be precisely the opposite of what we'd want to see if we were hoping for a broader rebound. But not in March, right? I mean, we wouldn't expect them to move again in March. Almost certainly not, I think, unless there were a a, a strong recovery in global markets, which I don't think we're going to see. Okay, Ryan, thank you very much. Thanks also to you, Henry. That's all for this week. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can tweet us at econbizfin and at econeconomics. And you can find our continuing coverage in the upcoming print issue of The Economist and on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 